According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, our growth comes through the scriptures. And once again, our text is Luke chapter 11. We are, however, moving on to a new paragraph beginning in verses uh, 37 and taking us down to the end of the chapter in verse 54. So Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. This is episode 12 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. Judgment against lawyers and Pharisees. Although, I'm not sure why they named it that, because it starts with the Pharisees first, and then a lawyer pipes up to say, hey, you've, uh, you've offended us too. We don't, we're not introduced to the lawyer until verse 45, but so it probably ought to be Pharisees and lawyers, but... That's the title we're stuck with because that's the, the harmony of the Gospels I'm making use of. Episode 12, Judgment Against Lawyers and Pharisees. Before we begin, we might sneeze. Somebody on Sunday told me I was doing something terrible by not sneezing. Well, yeah, they said I was doing some kind of harm by not sneezing, by holding it in, by suppressing it. I'm just... Okay. Yeah, I mean that's what I thought. You know, you don't want to hold your sneeze. Don't hold your sneeze. You know, I'm. Yeah. Okay. My sneeze is done. Let's uh, let's take a moment for prayer. Ask the Father to uh, to bless our studies. Keep us from sneezing while we study. We thank you. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day, for the truth of your word, the privilege and blessing it is for us to assemble together. And Father, we thank you for the, the allergy season. It's, uh, it's uh, almost over, Father. We're thankful for that. And, and it's uh, hardly like we're, we're not being tortured or we're not suffering for our faith, Father. It's just part of fallen bodies and a fallen world and a reminder that uh, the surpassing value of the grace is in you and not in ourselves. Father, so we thank you for the earthen vessels. We thank you, however, that those earthen vessels are temporary and we're looking forward to a better home and and, uh, a better body when we get there. Father, uh, we pray for our services today, for the uh, lesson this morning in in Luke 11, for the lesson tonight in in, uh, our 2 Corinthians series, that all things done today would be for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we have a lunch invitation. Always fun when you receive a lunch invitation. And uh, Jesus received a lunch invitation. So let's take a look at it. A Pharisee invited Jesus to lunch and was surprised by many things. That's what sets us off on this, uh, on this study. A Pharisee invited Jesus to lunch and was surprised by many things. Luke 11, verses 37 and 38. I'm actually going to go on down and read a a bit more, but this is what gets us started. When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined. That is, reclined at the table. Uh, When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God, But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. All right, we'll stop there. The context actually goes on for another 11 verses down to verse 54, or 10 more verses down to verse 54. Uh, But this at least gives us... Half of the story at this point is when one of the lawyers stands up and says, teacher, when you say this, you insult us, too. (laughs) All right. And Jesus said, really? Okay. well, woe to you as well. In verse 46, woe to you lawyers as well. You know, 
we'll we'll talk we'll touch on this here in a moment, but the idea of being insulted, the idea of being offended is really something that I think strikes a chord in our generation, in our culture. Because we live in the midst of a society that absolutely insists on never, ever being offended for anything. And if you're offended, then you're going to sue and then somebody has to pay or you have to change your activity so that I'm not offended kind of a thing. And the, the worse and worse it gets and the more and more it goes on, I just get offended by everybody getting offended. And so you start to wonder, well, what what's going to be the end of it here at this point? So... Uh, in any event, I think the idea in stumbling blocks, of course, we don't want to be a stumbling block in the sinful way, in the carnal way. But if we are being faithful to the truth of God's word and someone takes offense at doctrine, they take offense at God's character and his integrity in the, in the plan of God, then we can't help that. And we're not being a stumbling block. That's part of the inevitable stumbling block. And it's not coming through us. It's coming through the word of God. And so at that point, we have nothing to be... Uh, uh, embarrassed about or, or ashamed of or apologetic for. And uh, I, I don't apologize for offending them if it's the scriptures that have offended them. And uh, they can take it up with the one who wrote it and uh, hopefully come to come to uh, appreciate the truth, at least down the road, if not immediately. All right. So anyway, we'll we'll kind of reserve that for the moment. We won't get to the insulted lawyer yet, but um, it's just it's a fun passage to teach. It's a fun passage to think about. Any the idea of lawyers being offended is uh, is just <laughs> taking me back to my days in the jail when three lawyers were trapped in an elevator for four hours, and it just you know some of the things that will never happen again for the rest of your life. And so you you have the fond memories of the one time that 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 did actually take place. So for now, let's back up a bit and look at this Pharisee. We don't even know his name which is pretty normal in instances where the anonymity is preserved typically for those that do wickedness, typically for those that are not to be commemorated for all eternity. In terms of the rich man and Lazarus, why is it that we know Lazarus by name, but the rich man we don't? And that's a pretty consistent pattern in the scripture. Uh, that uh, for these guys to be left unnamed. It doesn't matter who he is. He's a Pharisee, and his attitude is representative and would apply to many, if not most, of the Pharisees themselves. So that's what we want to look at. All right, so the first point we study, or the first observation we make, is that this whole uh, episode begins with a lunch invitation, an invitation to lunch. We want to recognize that not every teaching opportunity is going to come in an academic setting with uh, students uh, seated down in Bibles and notebooks and taking notes and pastors uh, uh, with a microphone standing in a pulpit. There are many teaching opportunities that come about here and there in different places and uh, conversations, workplace, lunch place, different things. They can be teaching opportunities that just get sparked from any uh, conversational approach. So that becomes important for us as well. Well, his first surprise was that Jesus did not ceremonially purify himself before eating. His first surprise was that Jesus did not ceremonially purify himself before eating. And the translation in verse 38, the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised. He was literally amazed. It's a word that was normally applied when people were observing divine miracles, right? Uh, walking on water, the disciples were amazed. Turning water to wine, and the chief steward was amazed. Uh, you know, walking on, uh, did I say walking on water already? Raising Lazarus from the dead. People were amazed. You know, there's things you should legitimately be amazed at because we're a finite human being and we're observing acts of divine power. Of course, we're going to be amazed. We're seeing miracles. We're seeing works of divine power. We're seeing things that are beyond human experience. And you go, wow, I don't expect to see that every day, right? Well, this is the same concept. Jesus comes into the Pharisee's house and Jesus doesn't go through the ritual cleansing procedure which is not commanded in Scripture, but it is commanded in the Pharisee traditions. And to the Pharisee, his whole universe is just shattered. He's amazed. Because in his mentality, in his mindset, the very definition of religion 
is ritual purity. The, and, and to forsake that, to not daily, multiple times a day, or even multiple times a meal to pursue that is, is, is unthinkable. See, if you can just try to imagine the culture shock on different things, uh, and, and let's face it, we get, we get stuck in our, in our patterns, in our ruts. We, get, we grow accustomed to the way things are done here. Because this is us, and this is what we're accustomed to, and so forth. You go into a, a Lutheran setting, or a Catholic setting, or something with all the ritual, and the liturgy, and all of the robes, and the, and the things, it can be a bit of a shock. And you go, oh, wow, what's that about? Right? Just imagine. Then you go to Ukraine, and it's all the Orthodox, the, 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 the incense, and, the, and the, the, um, the chimes, the bells, and the things. But... Uh, uh, Jim Myers calls the smells and the bells. That's the, <laughs> the Orthodox Church. Well, what we're trying to illustrate here is this Pharisee is coming face to face with um, the, the, uh, the shocking realization. Uh, and I'm sure his fellow Pharisees had warned him. I'm sure that others had told him what a, what a heretic Jesus was or what a godless man he was or a sinner or whatever. And, and yet, <laughs> until he comes face to face with Jesus in his home and Jesus reclining at the table to eat and he doesn't first go over to those water jugs where the, the, the ritual purification water was stored, uh, it, it's just shocking. This is a very strong word here, the Thaumadzo vocabulary that, that describes his, um, his amazement or his surprise. So he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed Interesting way to render that because the verb is baptizo. It's our verb for baptism. It's our verb baptizo to dunk, to dip. And if uh, if it was used, you know, at a riverside in a in a more of a different context, you would translate it baptized. Like when he came to the river to be baptized by John. Well, he wasn't going to first be baptized, but he was going to first ceremonially wash before the meal. And they did use the term baptizo for that application. And uh, so the Lord has an answer to him. And it's interesting. The Lord said to him, we don't have anything recorded that he might have said anything. He didn't, we don't, if, if the Pharisee had words for Jesus, they're not recorded. He maybe, maybe he did say something like, what are you doing? Why didn't you wash? How can you eat? But if he did, they're not recorded. And I think it's likely that he didn't say a word, that he was still speechless, right? His jaw was dropped and he's just, you know, he probably, he probably is still standing by the water pots, just, and Jesus is over there reclining at the at the table already. And so uh, the Lord has a message for him, even without having to be told. Of course, he's uh, a prophet, but I don't think you have to be a prophet to read the, the stunned look on this guy's face and say, okay, he's pretty shocked. I didn't, I didn't uh, purify myself. And this has nothing to do with, of course, hygiene or washing your hands before a meal or anything like that. Flush that from your mind totally. All right, this is all about the Pharisees' religious system that insisted on ritual purification so as to leave themselves, and anyone following this, to leave them continuously in that purified, ritually purified state. And that's, that's alien for us. We taught it before just about five episodes ago. We're going to teach it again so that we understand what does it mean to be ritually purified. To be in that ritual cleansed state. Because it had a significance. It was designed to have a significance to Israel and their priesthood. But they carried it, the Pharisees, carried it far beyond that. And as a matter of fact, that's why they were called Pharisees. It wasn't the name they gave themselves. It was the name their critics gave them. Because of this hyper separation and uh, purification um, attitude. Nowadays, they'd call them obsessive-compulsive or something. They'd, <laughs> they'd probably diagnose them with something because they were so fastidious in their religious observances. All right. Well, his second surprise, <laughs> I'm sure, his first surprise was overwhelmed very quickly. Point B, sub-point B then. His second surprise came when Jesus launched into a diatribe against Phariseeism. He launched into a diatribe against Phariseeism. And that's what this message is. This message is a diatribe. 
Okay, sometimes diatribe has kind of become a negative term that any any rant is is thought of as a diatribe. That's not the case. Diatribe is actually a um, a homiletical method. It is a a means of communication, and there are times and places where they are in fact quite necessary and effective. This is one. So a diatribe against Phariseeism, and the the concept is inner versus outer. Internal reality, external observance. And, and the Pharisees were so wrapped up in the externals that they had totally missed the point on the internals. And when you miss the point on the internals, you're not doing anything. You're not worshiping. All right. It's like in modern times, people get all wrapped up in the externals and they think church is about uh, putting on a suit and tie and going somewhere on a Sunday and sitting there bored to tears for about an hour and uh, giving your, your nod to God money at the end. And uh, and you've had your public display that you're a good person. You're a moral person. You're a churchgoer. You're a, an ethical, upstanding member of the community. And then uh, you can uh, take your nicely dressed wife and your properly behaved children back home and resume your pagan ways Monday through Saturday. And it's uh, when when I don't, probably don't need to go much further on this. The illustration's pretty clear. We observe it in our day. External shows with no internal reality behind them. And in this message, where he contrasts the outer and the inner, and he makes his point, what it ultimately comes down to is Phariseeism itself. Phariseeism itself had lost the internal reality of of almost everything. Because they were so wrapped up in the external observances. Of course, exceptions. But uh, the fact that we can name two of them by name shows you how limited those exceptions actually are. All right. Dealing with this then. Point two. The requirements of Mosaic law for ceremonial purity did not include lunch at a Pharisee's house. (laughs) All right. The requirements of Mosaic law for ceremonial purity did not include lunch at a Pharisee's house. There were specific places where it was necessary. To be honest, that's a dumb expression. When would I be deceitful in a Bible class? All right, but to boil it on down, though, that's a better phrase, purity was the realm of the priesthood. Ritual purity was demanded of Aaron and his sons, and in some certain respects, the Levites, in providing assistance to the priesthood. But ritual purity was necessary for those that were participating in the ritual worship. In other words, to enter into the tabernacle, to participate in the Passover, Pentecost, trumpets, the, the feasts, required ritual purity. And as such, it was primarily the dominion of the priesthood. The only time that a run-of-the-mill, ordinary citizen Jewish person, you know, some ordinary, everyday uh, Bob from Benjamin, okay, the only time he had to be ritually pure were on those holy days when they were bringing their sacrifices. They had to be clean, ritually clean, in order to participate. And they would make sure they were ritually clean, which meant there were the things that defiled them. They had to put away. They had to remove the leaven from their house. They had to cleanse themselves. Uh, they had to abstain from marital relations because that was that was uh, something that was defiling in the ritual purity realm. And, and so they couldn't touch a dead body. That was another thing, you know. Even killing an animal for your meal was, was defiling because that was a corpse, a dead body of an animal. So daily life got put on hold in order to, for a special day, for a season, for a, a particular moment, to uh, obtain ritual purity status. Okay? And typically it was for, for only those uh, moments, those times, for observance of the feasts, the, the, the festivals, the sacrifices, and, uh, and so forth. Or, if the king had called for a solemn assembly, had called for a nation of mourning and prayer, then uh, the people would purify themselves for, for that purpose as well. But it was the exception, not the rule. 
And it was liturgical, meaning you were qualified to participate in the liturgy, in the worship, in the external worship. So you had an external purity, an external cleanliness that was supposed to go with the external observances. And all the externals were supposed to teach the reality of the internals. All the, all the, the, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the tools, the implements, the bread, everything was supposed to teach the coming person of Jesus Christ. Well, sadly, what happens with Phariseeism is um, they adapted the concept of ritual purity and they enforced it on themselves and they enforced it on any Jewish person who wanted to be more spiritual than other Jewish people. And they dedicated themselves to ritual purity all the time. Around the clock, all day, every day, in everything that they do, every meal, every day, going through this cleansing process, see, in amazing ways. Well, anytime you substitute your own ideas for spirituality uh, instead of what God has designed for spirituality, what have you done? You've created what Colossians talks about, the man-made religion, which has an appearance of something good, but is of no value against fleshly indulgences. All right, I guess that's... As far as I'm going to take that, we taught in Galilean Ministry, episode number 40, we taught a realm of teaching called Traditions Attacked, and something very similar happened. It wasn't with Jesus, it was with his disciples. And the Pharisees were all critical, why don't your disciples purify themselves, kind of a thing. And uh, so many of these concepts are in your notes from that episode, episode 40. Also, uh, we made reference to some of the works of uh, E.T. Robertson in Matthew chapter uh, 12 or 15 in there somewhere where he had dealt with the uh, the Pharisees and their traditions at uh, at some length. So if you want to go back to the website and get those messages and review the concept on that, you're certainly welcome to. But trying to keep um, the, the, the closest, it's hard for us to relate to because we don't have ritual purity in the same sense that they did in the Old Testament. All right. Um, we, our cleansing procedure is not a ritual, but a reality. It is the first John one nine confession. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are eligible now at this point to come into Bible class, to sit for instruction and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a soul cleansing for a soul reality in the church age. But in the old Testament, it was very ritualistic. It was very external and you would be excluded see a woman um, who was uh, at that time of the month would be excluded because that left her ceremonially unclean or if she just had a baby see for seven weeks she'd be excluded or for 14 weeks if it was a girl she'd be excluded and and ineligible to, to observe passover ineligible to attend the feast ineligible to participate uh in any of that and as i mentioned even normal marital relations would leave a husband and a wife both excluded that's why if you knew that the feast day was coming up, you sanctified yourself and, and abstinence was a part of that because you were trying to maintain your ritual purity. So it's hard for us to, to relate to that in exactly the same way because this is not a feature of our, of our present stewardship. All right, thirdly. Point three, Jesus' primary diatribe against Phariseeism was not the external cleanliness they emphasized, but the internal wickedness they never realized. Jesus' primary diatribe against Phariseeism was not the external cleanliness they emphasized, but the internal wickedness they never realized. And that's what we glean out of verses 39 through 41. I'm going to give you some more detail here in a moment because the vocabulary is interesting. I think the concepts are pretty comprehensive. He wasn't being critical of their, of their desire for purity. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, we, we were talking about Mormonism this morning and their, their beliefs and their practices. And, and uh, I've known Mormons over the years. I grew up with Mormons in the neighborhood and at school. And just in pure human terms, for morality, for um, uh, their civic-mindedness and their law-abiding ways, and their, uh, they're good people. They're moral. 
They're uh, they're uh, they con- they're contributive uh, members of society. They uh, they uh, they're they're, ama- they're generous people, absolutely generous people. And and even here we uh, observe some of that because in the days when uh, when Joyce Mansell was here in her wheelchair, the 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 Mormon friends that she had would just go the extra mile, the extra twenty miles, shirt off their back, bend over backwards. They would minister to her as a as a wheelchair bound widow. They just poured out all kinds of service for her. And none of it, of course, was divine good. None of it was uh, they're they're worshiping their false god and their false scriptures, and and it's all it's all of the evil one. See, so he's not being critical of their external cleanliness. He's not being negative against ritual purity. But he wants to have the biblical doctrine that applies to ritual purity. That is to prepare a true worshiper of Jehovah in spirit and in truth to be able to participate in the system as it was designed and given to the Jewish people. And uh, not to participate in the twisted religious system that had become Pharisaic Judaism and uh, ultimately rabbinic Judaism to this very day. So the internal wickedness, and they never realized it. It, The amazing thing is when you substitute evil for good and good for evil, when you substitute the creation for the creature or the creature for the creator and so forth, when you start to twist the plan of God, what else are you twisting with that? You're also twisting the, the very value system for what it is. And so you substitute his plan for your plan, and obviously then what you're doing is good. <laughs> and what you're doing is right. And what you're doing is rewardable. What you're doing is, is pleasing to God. Because why? Well, because you said it was. And you are the greatest believers on the planet today. Why? Because you're pursuing your system better than anybody else is pursuing your system. When it comes right down to it. So he says, you clean, back to verse 39, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. And what a neat illustration, because, you know, when you're you're cleaning your cups and you're cleaning your platters and your utensils and spoons and whatever you're cleaning, everything you clean, you're cleaning the outside, right? I never thought of this until I was studying this passage. You clean the outside of the cup. You clean the outside of the platter. Well... Yeah. When would you ever somehow dig into a platter and somehow you wouldn't? It's it's a platter, you know. It's a solid thing of dish or whatever it is, and it's got a top, it's got a bottom, maybe it's got a rim or whatever. But you're still cleaning the outside of it, and you would never dream of somehow getting into the internals of the ceramic or the whatever the material is, and, and it doesn't need to be clean. It's just it's just a thing. You clean the outside. There's no inside. But with human beings, of course, you've got the internal. You've got the soul. You've got the reality. And so he, uh, this is, uh, once it finally hit me, I thought, wow, you know. I think Sharon had that figured out years ago, but it just hit me not too long ago that the outside of the cup. See, I was thinking of outside of the cup as, um, you know, this thing out here and not inside there where the coffee sits. And I thought, well, that's kind of gross. You know, you're better off actually cleaning this part. This part could be as filthy as whatever, and it doesn't bother me at all, because you're not going to, you know, you're not licking the outside of the cup. You're drinking the coffee inside the cup. And so the whole impact of this for years, I thought, well, that's kind of a weird statement about cleaning the outside of the cup. Why are they doing that? But no, it's not not using inside-outside the same way that, that I was thinking of it as. All right. Inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. This is the content of your soul. This is the nature of your tree. And so it's the nature of your fruit. Remember, being precedes doing. Now, some sub points here. Internally filled with robbery and wickedness. That's what he told them. What a, what a description. Because as far as public uh, testimony is concerned, they were well-respected. Oh, look at these guys. They're the best kind of Jewish people ever. They they were the Jews of the Jews, the Hebrews of the Hebrews, Paul said he was. As to the righteousness found in the law, blameless. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. They were it. And what a description. 
And you're filled with robbery and wickedness. And what this highlights is that they are, in fact, dedicated in their service to Satan. This description matches so closely to the expression in Ezekiel 28.16 that it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. You know, the, uh, the, the most insidious weapons Satan has are not the immorally depraved reprobates of this world. They're obvious enough. The, the most insidious weapons that he has are the morally depraved good people in this world that can creep into places that the immoral reprobates can't creep into and they can stir up trouble and lead people astray. Ezekiel 28, we've been in recently in our ministry workshop classes. In case you've not been a part of those classes, I'll remind you here. Ezekiel 28. And the description of Halel ben Shachar, the uh, unfallen angelic being that will later subsequently be known as Satan. And he was perfect until his imperfection came into existence. He had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, we read in verse 12. This is a lament, a lament for the sadness of a departed glory. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was recovering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. If you want extra credit for class, you should uh, uh, diagram these stones and relate this uniform to the high priest uniform of uh, the Levitical priesthood. And I think you see a parallel there. and You'll observe a, a priestly function in, uh, in the uh, person of Satan. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed, the Christ cherub who covers or who guards. And I placed you there. The Christ cherub who covers or who guards. And I placed you there. Adam was anointed, but he was the anointed man uh, placed in his own Eden, in his own created earth. And nevertheless, he was commanded to guard, to keep the garden and to guard it. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. Notice now, from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. This is so critical because this is backwards from our experience. We are born unrighteous. And then by grace through faith, we are made righteous. We receive his righteousness. So we're born sinners. We're made perfect. Satan's experience was the other way around. He was created perfect and then became unrighteous. Blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Important to understand this. God is not the creator of unrighteousness. He did not create evil. He does not create uh, sin. But He created a volitional realm of creatures and in the exercise of volition contrary to his will, the consequence of that was the generation of this unrighteousness. And so God did not create it, but he created a volitional being, and that volitional being then brought about the consequential generation of sin, the consequential generation of evil, the consequential generation of unrighteousness or wickedness comes about. So the wickedness like we have with the uh, Pharisees. Robbery and wickedness. And it goes on. By the abundance of your trade, and you'll see there wealth and prosperity and all the good things in life, right? By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And this is the description. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And this is the link back to Luke chapter 11 and the description of these Pharisees that externally were the finest, most upstanding members of their community. They were the most religious Jews you'd ever come across. But internally filled with robbery and wickedness. Internally filled with violence and you sinned. Unrighteousness was found in you. So, we have here the vivid description of those who were dedicated in their service to Satan. 
dedicated a saint. Now, they wouldn't put it that way, of course. They were serving Yahweh. They would tell you to your face that they were serving Yahweh. They would tell you they were serving Adonai because they were too religious to pronounce Yahweh. So they would say, we're serving Adonai, my Lord. And they were so religious, they would not utter the name of Yahweh. Because that name was too holy for them. They couldn't, their sinful lips couldn't utter it, right? But were they really serving Adonai Yahweh? They were serving Satan. He calls them a brood of vipers. They are sons of serpents. They are of their father, the devil. They want to do the desires of their father. John chapter 8. And so is it any wonder these um, folks who claim to worship Yahweh, just like our own incarnation of Jehovah's Witnesses in our century, in our modern uh, culture, are they worshiping Jehovah? Are they witnessing to Jehovah? No, they're worshiping and witnessing to to the devil. Absolutely. Internally filled with robbery and wickedness. And you know, the, the, the deceit of this, the, uh, the nature of this, it, it, it becomes, I think, it becomes a poetic um, reality or uh, culmination when at the end of his ministry they demand for Barabbas to be released. Because Barabbas, what was Barabbas? He was a murderer. But at least he was an open, honest, uh, upfront about it, external, uh, immorally depraved, reprobate murderer. He wasn't posing as any kind of religious guy. He was just a murdering thug. But he was the illustration. He was the, the living testimony to what they were too, just in their hearts. While they put on the, the charade. Internally filled with robbery and wickedness. The vocabulary is interesting. Robbery. So some point B, we talk about robbery. And uh, robbery is not quite there, but it's more of the plundering or the snatching, the seizing, the even uh, actually rape is a better word than robbery. But harpage coming from harpazo. Harpage, number 724, referencing the act of the verb, the act of plundering, the act of robbery, the act of seizure, the act of violent laying hold of. There's a passage in Hebrews 10.34 I think we're familiar with where the author of Hebrews tells his audience that they had rejoiced when uh, they had considered joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing that they had a better and abiding possession waiting for them in glory. You know. The divine viewpoint perspective, if your property is taken, you can rejoice that you've got treasure laid up in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal. And it's not fun to be robbed from in the earthly sense, but when you can contrast it with a spiritual reality, what have they stolen? Something that's doomed to perish anyway. Or your house burns down. In these news stories about a house burning down and people that are interviewed, oh, we've lost everything we own. I like it when a believer can testify, we, we lost some earthly possessions. But, you know, the Lord's provided. Uh, we're still alive. We're thankful for that. We've got a home laid up for it, waiting for us in heaven, that kind of thing. Not often that you see those testimonies, and I wonder if maybe there's more than we actually see, but the, the newspaper kind of keeps them from getting quoted. I don't know. But I love it when I read it occasionally, you know, hey, you know what? A house burned down. That's just a thing. You know, possessions, stuff. So the word is used in Hebrews 10.34 when we read about how the believers there were able to rejoice at the seizure of their property. How are we going to handle it when our things are taken away, when biblical Christianity is outlawed, when we're not permitted to have our Bible church and teach our Bible classes? Only the state-approved denominational churches are allowed to own property or uh, conduct their services, which aren't Bible classes anyway, and they can play their religious games. Don't you dare say, oh, that would never happen here. All right, the noun comes from the verb. The verb is harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, harpazo. Of course, Greek doesn't have an H. We have a rough breather on top of the A there. And so instead of arpazo, we say harpazo. A little rough breather up there. 
is your H sound, Harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, Harpazo, number 726, which means to snatch, to grab. And that's our rapture word in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. A day will come, and I pray it's today. The Lord Himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are rise first. Then we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will be caught up together. We will be harpazoed. We're going to get harpazoed. We're going to be grabbed. And uh, it is uh, entirely within the sovereignty of the one doing the harpazoing. He grabs, he takes custody of, he takes control of, and he snatches us up in the air. Anyway, the Greek harpazo, it's vivid and it's undeniable. These people that come along and say, well, there's no, there's no rapture in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Bug me to tears. I try to get if I, I try to show patience. Word rapture is not in the Bible. Of course, it's in the Bible. I like the line from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He said, "Of course not. Rapture is an English word. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. The Greek word harpazo is in there. You bet. When they put it into the Vulgate Latin, they used rapturo. They used rapto." Where we get raptor, the bird that snatches and grabs, the velociraptor, dinosaurs that were pretty cool in those movies, the uh, the rapt, uh, rapt, your rapt attention. If a speaker is so captivating that he has his audience in a rapt attention, what does that mean? It means you're in the speaker's clutches and he's not letting go and you're hanging on his every word. And, and um, you know, if you develop a talent for that, you can end up president someday. People just hang on your words and just worship what you say. Rapt attention. Rapt. Rapt. Rape. It's a word for rape. Um, for grabbing violently, seizing violently, and, and so forth. Anyway, that's what these guys are full of. Full of harpage and paneria. Wickedness. So point C, we give you your vocabulary for wickedness. Paneria. Paneria. P-O-N-E-R-I-A. Paneria. Number 4189. Just like with harpage is a state or condition. The state or condition of paneras, which is your adjective for evil. Paneras. In fact, that's one of the titles of Satan. He is ha paneras, the evil one. Jesus Christ prayed that the Lord would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He prayed, don't take them out of the world, but, uh, but uh, sanctify them in the truth and sanctify them, protect them from the evil one. Ha paneros. It is a term referencing Satan himself. And all those that are following the plans and designs of ha paneros are themselves paneros, and they are functioning in realms of paneria. A state or condition of wickedness, evil, wicked, bad. And the sad thing is that so often this is cloaked in the externals of goodness. It's cloaked in the externals of goodness, but it's not. Different uh, groups we've been invited to join, participate in, march with this group, write letters with that group, participate in this protest, do something else here. And uh, they want us to, to join in the efforts with uh, with, with Satan worshippers. All right, you know maybe they're they're uh, Roman uh, Virgin Mother worshiping Satan worshippers, or maybe they're Mormon, uh, you know Moroni reading uh, Satan worshippers, or the Jehovah's Witness uh, Watchtower Satan worshippers, or they're Mary Baker Eddy Satan worshippers, or what have you. And but they say, well, we can at least agree on these areas. We can at least cooperate on these political causes or in these earthly efforts. Hmm. There must be a, a, a footnote in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians I'm not familiar with. It tells me not to be unequally yoked. It doesn't say, well, you know, go ahead and be yoked unequally yoked for political causes or economic efforts or whatever. I'm not going to participate in their unfruitful deeds of darkness. Even when it's disguised as being good, it is Paneria, the realm of Paneros. I think the sooner we understand that, the better, especially if we 
will quit pulling the wool over our eyes and stop denying that the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. The whole world. When it comes right down to it. So, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You are full of robbery and wickedness. There's different translations. And it doesn't matter much how you put it into English. New American Standard has robbery and wickedness. It's kind of alone in that. Others prefer greed instead of robbery. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uses greed and evil. Uh, New King James and IV ESV all go greed and wickedness. The old King James, uh, the 1611 King James, has ravening and wickedness. And I kind of like that, actually. I kind of like the Elizabethan ravening. Ravening, ravening. Okay. The Vulgate has rapina et iniquitate. Rapina, giving you the idea of rapto, uh, rape, rapina. Rapine, there's an English word, rapine and plunder. Regardless of the translation, they all testify to the Lord's messages in Galilee. This is a restatement of previous instructions. And in fact, in Galilean ministry episode number 24, he taught these doctrines. And in Galilean ministry uh, number 40, he taught these doctrines. We already made mention of uh, ministry 40. That was the traditions attacked. But uh, also in episode 24, two different times in Galilee, he taught this. Matthew 12 and then Matthew 15. So however you translate it, the concepts are still undeniable and they relate perfectly with this previous teaching. I think it's interesting. Previous teaching that he was able to give the crowds. Previous teaching he was able to give his disciples. Previous teaching he gave to some of the believing women, the leading women, various folks. But he did not have the opportunity to give this teaching to certain Pharisees. And now he's got a chance to do so one-on-one with whoever this guy is that invited him out to lunch. Don't think he'll make that mistake again. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's amazing. I did a funeral one time and the people were absolutely living. Horribly living. And I didn't know the family, but they, uh, they did not like the message. The gospel message, the, the message about eternal life. They, just, they were just living. And... Um, and they, and they told me so. They, you know, if they'd have known it was going to be like that, I would not have been invited to, to do the funeral. And so I just thanked them and left. But see, they weren't the ones that invited me. It was another family member, a brother, a fellow from Houston, who actually is a member of Baraka Church and had uh, every intention of <laughs> making sure that the funeral service was going to be doctrinal. And so they were absolutely livid, absolutely hateful. Told me, um, we, if we'd have known this is what we were going to hear, we wouldn't have invited you. Okay, thank you. Two weeks later, another family member dies. Two weeks later. And the same brother in Houston calls me up. And I tell him, I said, are, are you sure about this? <laughs> they, they, uh, they seemed pretty hostile last time. I don't think they want me back. So, well, they don't want you back, but you need to be back. And so three weeks in between one funeral to the next, they heard the same gospel message the second time around. And uh, who knows? <laughs> Maybe I'll go back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want you know more of that family to die. But if you know, they got to hear it again and again and again and again, okay. Because it's not going to change. They're not going to get a different message next time. It's the same gospel message. And if God's gracious to give it to him two times or three times or a hundred times, you've got to stay faithful to the message. So here's Jesus. He had the opportunity to teach this doctrine to his disciples, to the leading women, to those in positive volition, to uh, different crowds and different venues, but not to the Pharisees. So here he's got a chance with a Pharisee one-on-one in the Pharisee's house, and he's going to give that message. In Matthew 12, it's interesting because he's... Uh, Addressing this hostile group. 
They had accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Anyway, he goes on to say, either make the good the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You know, the being precedes the doing. If it's a good tree, it'll have good fruit. Then he calls them a brood of vipers. He says, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his thesaurus, his good treasure, what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Uh, Somebody asked me the other day where that verse was found. I forget who asked me, but if it was you, that's where the verse is found. Okay. Every careless word. What is it we're going to be accountable for the judgment seat of Christ? Our divine good production, gold, silver, precious stone, will be purified and, and laid up as eternal treasure for Christ. Our wood, hay, and stubble, human good production, goes up in smoke, burned up, consumed, and utterly done away with. Beyond production, there is accountability for spoken words, and we see that here. Accountability for spoken words. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. The different application there. But the principle being the tree produces the appropriate fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. And that's what he's telling this Pharisee right here in his home. Because the Pharisee was all wrapped around the axle that Jesus didn't purify himself. He's, hey, you know, it's not the food you're putting in. It's what's coming out that defiles a man. And that's what he taught in Galilean ministry episode number 40. Over to Matthew 15. Verses 15 through 20. And here is where uh, the Pharisees say, How come in verse 2 your disciples break the tradition? How come they break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And so he doesn't answer. He just says, well, how come you break the uh, commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? (laughs) And he goes on to describe what they were doing with the Korban procedure and failing to honor their father and their mother. But then later on, down in, um, oh, and there's another mention there in verse 12. Notice, uh, hear and understand, he says in verse 10, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Get it straight. And the disciples come and say, did you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard that statement? And I don't see Jesus getting all worked up about it. So, oh, oh, I better go fix that. I better go apologize. I better go soothe matters over. No, if they were offended, they were offended by the Word of God. They were offended by the Word of God. I, I did nothing to, to, to cause offense. They were offended by the Word of God. So every plant the Heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. If the blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. Let them alone. That's where I think some people get off track because they think apologetics is the ministry of straightening out false religions. No, apologetics is keeping us armed and prepared in order to counter anything the false religions promote. But we're not going to straighten up the the Mormons. We're not going to fix Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not going to take all these cults and, and fix their theology and bring them into Orthodox Christianity. And we're not supposed to. We can't. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. Then Peter says, okay, Lord, uh, then explain the parable to us. Well, are you still lacking in understanding also? You haven't figured this out yet? Do you, do you have to get blunt and dirty with you here? I mean, how crude does it have to get for Peter to catch on? Well, kind of crude. <laughs> Everything you eat goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and comes back out. Is eliminated. All right? Are you catching the drift yet, Peter? All right. But it's the things that come from the mouth. The things that are, that are verbal expressions of the heart that show what condition that heart's truly in. That's the, uh, the, the uh, aspect of defilement here. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, not defile the man. All right, so regardless of the translation... They all testify to the previous messages, the Lord's messages in Galilee. All right. We're about halfway through. We've got four minutes left. (laughs) Okay, halfway through, four minutes left. 
We'll be coming back next week, won't we? You know, there's an antidote to Phariseeism. There's an antidote to religion. It's called reality. It's called the Christian way of life, the spiritual walk. And the same antidote that Jesus is prescribing here, the guy won't take it. You know, that's to be expected, right? You ever have a doctor give you a prescription and you just blow it off? Say, I'm not taking that. All right. <laughs> well, Jesus has a good prescription here. And this patient is saying, nope, want no part of that. But here's the antidote to religion, Phariseeism. It's called the reality of walking in the light. The truth of the spiritual way of life. Verse 41. And it's, it's a verse that's going to take time. And, and I think three minutes is not fair. But he says, give that which is within as charity. And then all things are clean for you. Give that which is within as charity. Then all things are clean for you. And this is a statement that's going to hit this Pharisee in a way like the statement he made to the rich young ruler. It's something he can't abide by. It's something he can't swallow. He can't conceive of, uh, of the terms that Jesus is using. It just doesn't compute. It's like when he told the rich young ruler, give away all your money and, and you can earn eternal life. That was unthinkable to him because of his wealth and because ultimately his wealth was the source of his confidence. It was also not only the source of his confidence, his wealth was the undeniable testimony that, uh, that God was happy with him. That he was a spiritual guy. And that he was, and people do the same thing today. Hey, I'm, I'm wealthy. I'm, I'm uh, comfortable. I'm, God's blessing me. I must, my religion must be going pretty well. You have a hard time convincing a prosperous person that uh, oh, yeah, he's doing real well in his religion, but he's on the road to hell. Try explaining that to someone who thinks that he's got life made in the shade and you're the one that's struggling with bills and problems and all this other kind of stuff. Well, he says, give that which is within as charity. Cultivate the inner, we'll deal with this next week, cultivate the inner character of godliness and the blessings of what you can bequeath to others. Then all things are clean to you. If the heart attitude is clean, the fruit's clean. If your walk is right, then the things you do will reflect that. And, of course, he's going to reject that, so he's in, he's in store for the three woes. Any woe message is bad, but three of them back to back to back here is really bad. You uh, pay tithe of mint and rue every kind of garden herb. Can you imagine? You are so fastidious about your tithing. Absolutely fastidious about your tithing that you tithe everything. And so you come home from H-E-B and you've got a, a little canister of... Um, oregano or some kind of spice, right? And before you add it to your recipe, before you cook your spaghetti or whatever your meal is, you take this little jar, you open it up, you, you pour it out, you balance it out, and a tithe of that is going to the temple. And then the, the rest of this, okay, back in, now I can use this for earthly purposes. They're tithing everything. Tithing their salt and pepper shakers. Tithing their, I mean, everything. Mint and Rue and every kind of garden herb. So fastidious about all these deals. And they miss the big deal. And you disregard justice and the love of God. How can you miss the big picture because you're so busy being so minutely religious? It's horrible. And yet, speak to the Pharisees, we see it all the time. All the time. Okay. Well, we'll uh, resume this uh, next week, Lord willing, rapture pending. Got a good jump on it, and uh, we'll cover some more of these details. In particular, I think the idea of insulting, you insult us too. The, um, the hubris of Jesus uh, is how they took it. Uh, the verb they use is uh, where we get our English word hubris. They just viewed him as so uh, vile in his insulting of of, of the Pharisees and the lawyers. And who do you think you are? And the hubris of it all. So uh, we'll have some fun with it because, again, it's something we encounter all the time. And as we stay faithful to the truth, 
We're going to insult some folks along the way. All right. Just so long as it's not you that's the stumbling block, but the truth that's the stumbling block, then let it go. Because they're not dealing with you. They're dealing with the word of God. They can take it up. Like I say, take it up with the one who wrote it. Okay. I'm just teaching. I didn't write it. So take it up with him. Thank you, Father, for this day, for our time together in the word. Thank you for the freedom that our nation still enjoys uh, in order for believers to gather together peacefully and study the living and abiding word of God. Thank you that it's not yet been designated as uh, hate speech or illegal material. Uh, but Father, as of today, we can still uh, teach line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.